0: Amen and good morning. It's good to worship with you all today. Um, happy Easter, happy Resurrection Sunday. If you're new here today, my name is Fred. I'm one of the pastors. I'm excited to share the Word of God with you today. We are going to be in 1 Corinthians 15. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there. If you don't have a Bible, no, no big deal. We'll have the words on the screen behind me and you can follow along there. What I want to do today is uh, having worshipped and, and and spent some time in praise, uh, I want to get into the Word and I want to reflect on the resurrection. And I, w- I want to consider four things about the resurrection that that I think we need to consider here today. We're also going to have some baptisms during the service. Many of you are here to support a loved one who's getting baptized. Thank you for coming, and uh, and um, we'll have an opportunity also to respond to the resurrection today. So. The four things I want to consider uh, concerning the resurrection are on the handout that we gave you on the way in. So if you want to jot down some notes, fill in the blanks, follow along on there today. Go ahead and get that out. On the back, you should see a place to take notes. The first consideration we're going to look at today is the reality of the resurrection. Perhaps a good place to start is to to ask and answer the question: Is the resurrection something that actually happened? Is the resurrection something that is, is, has been established as historical fact? Of course, the biblical answer to that is, is that the resurrection of Jesus is as real as anything has ever been. But there are many objections. People raise concerns, objections, rightfully so. When we're talking about something as uh, extraordinary as someone returning from the dead then we, we, ought to, we ought to be cautious and we ought to look and investigate and say, well, is there good reason to believe this? And what I want to show you today is that I believe that belief in the resurrection is no blind leap of faith, that there is significant evidence and that the rational conclusion to come to is indeed that Jesus did rise from the dead. So we'll look at 1 Corinthians 15 together. I'm going to start in verse 3. If you'll follow along with me, Paul writing to the church in Corinth says, for I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Then he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12, then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. Paul presenting his evidence, and you got to understand that the, the book of First Corinthians is a letter that Paul wrote to a specific audience in response to things that were going on in their church there were questions about the resurrection. Not only questions about the the truthfulness that these objections perhaps would have come from outside of the church, objections or questions about the truthfulness of Jesus's resurrection, but what does the resurrection mean for us? Are you saying that because Jesus raised from the dead that, that we too will not stay dead forever, but that we will be resurrected? And Paul's responding to some of these questions. He begins by presenting his case for the resurrection by presenting witnesses. It's like we see often in a court of law when someone is trying to prove uh, the innocence or the guilt of someone, they bring forth witnesses and Paul brings forth his witnesses. Starting in verse five, it says that he appeared to Cephas Cephas is another name that Peter went by. This is the Apostle Peter. This was one of Jesus' closest followers. This is a man who would go on to be one of the key leaders in the first century church after the resurrection of Jesus. This is the same Peter, however, who denied Jesus during his arrest and his trial and abandoned him at his crucifixion. Peter's an interesting witness to bring forward because in some sense, I'm sure the last person Peter wanted to see after all he had done, he, you know, the night before Jesus is arrested, Peter says, man, I don't care what everybody else does. I'll die for you, Jesus. Nobody's going to, nobody's going to take me from your side. And Jesus says, before morning comes, you will have denied me three times. And Peter Indeed, denied his friend, his savior. So, in some sense, there's probably not a lot of interest in Peter running into Jesus again. He knows that he has been exposed. He is not the man that he claimed to be. And if there's anybody who has suffered more as a result, then there's nobody who suffered more as a result than Jesus. And yet Peter becomes one of the leading witnesses of the early church of the resurrected Jesus. He saw Jesus on several occasions after his resurrection. Then One of those occasions we read about in the end of John's gospel, Jesus recommissioned Peter. He restores him. He deals with Peter. He doesn't ignore Peter's denial. He, he deals with it and he recommissions him to be a leader in the early church. So that's an interesting witness that Paul starts with. And then he says, and then he revealed himself to the 12, meaning the other of the 12 disciples that Jesus had called to himself early on in his ministry, these men who were with him almost from the very beginning of his ministry and who witnessed his miracles, who were witnesses to his teaching and who were the ones who abandoned him at his arrest and his crucifixion. Interesting thing about the 12 as we know that that some of them doubted that Jesus had indeed raised from the dead. The first time they heard it, they were all like, "Are you kidding me? Now you, you're you, you're just seeing things. You're responding out of grief. This is wishful thinking." Until they saw him. In fact, Thomas was was the most adamant um, among the group who who said he was not going to believe that Jesus was alive unless he saw him with his own eyes and touched him with his very hands. It's kind of comforting to know that they doubted. It's comforting to know these are not gullible men. These are, these, these are not men who would just go along with anything. They're like us. They hear a story of resurrection from the dead and they're skeptical. I don't, I don't know if I can believe that. I don't know if I can accept that. Yes, I may want that to be true, but I cannot defy my own reasoning. This is something I'm gonna have to experience for myself. And so Jesus reveals himself to Thomas. He takes Thomas's hand, he places it on his side. He shows him the scars in his hands from his crucifixion. He reveals himself as real. So Jesus appears to the 12. Then Paul goes on to say, then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. This is an amazing testimony to the resurrection of Jesus because a handful of men, especially men who were stricken with grief, could have, could have been wrong. You know, it's not all that unusual when we've lost somebody close to us to have these kinds of experiences where we feel like maybe they were with us. We feel like maybe we, we saw them or we heard them Grief does these kinds of things to the human mind, and, and maybe that's what they're experiencing. It, you know, As you look a little bit closer, it seems to be more than that. But then we, we have Paul, he says, hey, how about the 500 brothers and sisters who saw him all at one time? There is no historical precedent for that type of mass hallucination. To argue that 500 people... Saw the same thing at the same time and they were all wrong, that they were all making this up or seeing something that wasn't real, just doesn't really hold up to reason. Paul says, most of them are still alive. In other words, you can go ask them. I'm not telling you a story about people that you can't approach and confirm this story with. They're still alive. They're still out there telling people what they saw. They're they're still witnessing and testifying to what they saw. And you can question them and you can ask them and decide for yourself if you think that they really saw the resurrected Jesus. Verse seven, Paul goes on to say, then he appeared to James. Really interesting that he includes James here. James is Jesus's brother, -brother half-brother to be exact. The wild thing about James is that James did not believe Jesus was who he said he was prior to the resurrection. He was Jesus' brother. Like, like he grew up with Jesus. And if you have a brother, you you can probably relate. It would take a lot to convince you uh, that they were the kind of person that Jesus was claiming to be. In fact, Jesus' miracles... Jesus's astounding wisdom and ability to teach the scriptures were not enough to convince James of who Jesus was. He remained a skeptic until he saw the resurrected Jesus. Think about that for a minute. Here is a man who, in spite of all kinds of miraculous things happening around him and around his brother, Jesus, refused to believe that Jesus was who he said he was. What changed James? And what changed the other people that Paul mentions here? What changed Peter from a broken man into the the leader of the early church that we see in the book of Acts? What What would cause 500 people to say that they had witnessed the resurrected Jesus? What convinced Thomas, who had such strong doubts, that the resurrection was real. Then Paul concludes. He says last of all as to one born at the wrong time he also appeared to me. Now you may know but perhaps you don't know the story of Paul. Prior to meeting the resurrected Jesus, Paul hated Christians. He was he was the early church's greatest enemy. He was going around with the authority of the Jewish leaders and he was arresting and he was prosecuting people for blasphemy because they were declaring that Jesus had risen from the dead and they were declaring that Jesus was the son of God and they were declaring that Jesus was the Messiah that the Jewish people had been waiting for and he hated them. He hated them so much that he made it his number one mission to stop them. He was traveling. And if he heard there were Christians over there, he was going over there. If he heard there were Christians over there, he was going over there and he was doing everything he could to stop them. He even was responsible for the first martyr in the Christian church, a man named Stephen who was killed for preaching the gospel. That was Paul's doing. What changed? What convinced this man what can was it the guilt of what he was doing? No, he would say he felt completely righteous in what he was doing. What he says changed him was he saw the risen Lord. Now, do all of these witnesses mean that Jesus indeed rose from the dead? It's strong evidence, but you can't you can't conclude from that. You, well, you can apply reason. And say this is a pretty strong case, but all of this doesn't necessarily prove that Jesus rose from the dead. But it, what it does do is it it presents evidence that you're going to have to, if you reject the resurrection of Jesus, you're going to have to find some other way of explaining. How do you explain all of this? How do you explain the change that took place in these people? Who claim to have seen Jesus. How do you explain the, the millions of people who, over the last 2,000 years who say that Jesus is alive and real in their lives? I think the reasonable conclusion to come to is that Jesus really did rise from the dead. I think the best way to explain all of the evidence that we have, the best way to understand the claims not only from apostle paul but from the other biblical writers the claims of millions of people who have believed in jesus ever since and say that they have experienced the reality of jesus in their lives myself included i think the best way to explain that is to believe that the resurrection of jesus is actually a historical fact that he really did rise from the grave that he really did defeat death on our behalf that the that the tomb really is empty So that's the reality of the resurrection. Having considered the reality of the resurrection, let's let's move on to point number two on the handout, the importance of the resurrection. Well, just how important is this? Does it really matter if Jesus rose from the dead? Can't we have faith and can't we believe in, in Jesus without believing in the resurrection of Jesus? Well, Paul has an answer for that. He says in verse 13, he says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. In other words, he's responding to people who say, just like many people say today, once you die, you die. There's nothing else. There's no life after death. There's no heaven. There's no hell. There's, there's, there's no eternal life. There's just this life, and once it's over, it's over. He says, well, if that's the case, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised, verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. Paul seems to to be saying that our entire faith, our entire belief in, in Jesus as Savior hinges upon this one event, the resurrection of Jesus. He he goes as far to say in verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. In other words, if Jesus has not risen from the grave, then we have no forgiveness for our sins. We are still guilty before God. And he says in verse 18, those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished if we have put our hope in Christ this is so sobering. If we've put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. Paul regards nothing as more pitiful than people who falsely believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Paul regards something as nothing as more pitiful than those who have this false expectation of being resurrected to live with Jesus forever. That is the importance of the resurrection. It is the foundation that our, that our faith, that our belief in the forgiveness of our sins and that our hope of eternal life is built upon. The resurrection is a, a, a cornerstone in the, the, the whole Christian faith. And if we can't trust the resurrection, then we have no valid reason to think that our sins are forgiven and that we have gained eternal life. The good news is, is Paul is utterly convinced of the resurrection of Jesus. This is a man who will spend the rest of his life suffering suffering. To advance the gospel. This is a man who will spend the rest of his life enduring incredible trials and tribulations to make sure that more people hear about the resurrection of Jesus. This is a man who will eventually give his life for the gospel. Along with so many others. Church history tells us that those, those, uh, those 12 that Jesus called to himself aside from Judas Almost all of them would go on to die for preaching the gospel. Whether or not you're convinced of the resurrection of Jesus, you should know that these people were convinced of the resurrection of Jesus. They believed this. They lived for it. They died for it. So having considered the reality of the resurrection, the importance of the resurrection, let's also consider what are the effects of the resurrection, the next thing you see in your handout. And while you're jotting that down, we've got some people that are gonna get baptized here in a few minutes. I wanna dismiss them because they need to go get prepared for their baptism. So if you're being baptized here today, if you slide out and go ahead and get ready, uh, we'll be ready for you in just a few minutes. What are the effects of the resurrection? Well, we're not gonna... We're not going to cover all of them, just as like we didn't talk about all of the evidence uh, for the resurrection. I can't, I don't have time to go into all of the effects of the resurrection on us personally. I'm just simply want to look to the, the specific things that Paul talks about here in 1 Corinthians 15, because having been convinced that resurrection, that the resurrection is a reality, having been convinced that Jesus was risen from the dead and that, that we as believers and followers of Christ will one day be resurrected as well, that presents all kinds of questions, doesn't it? I mean, think about that. If, if we're saying that though we expect to die, that one day we will be resurrected from the dead, then that That presents some interesting questions. I've been to a lot of funerals. You know, on TV, um, especially like, I think of like the Western movies and stuff like that. They'd put somebody in like kind of a sort of shabby pine box and then bury them in the ground a little bit. And like with that image in mind, you think, okay, I could see like, if you came back to life, maybe you could dig your way out of that thing. But when we bury people, we bury people. You go into a vault. You 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 you're not getting out of there. And so, what does this mean? The resurrection of the dead, or, or or we? What if somebody was cremated? What does this mean that they'll be resurrected? Does the resurrection mean that our bodies will be put back together to look the way that they look now? If so, that's not that great. <laughs> I don't know if that's how I want to spend eternity. <laughs> These are the kinds of questions that this brings up. These are the kinds of questions that the Corinthians were asking. And so Paul responds. First of all, he follows up verse 19, where he said, if we have put our our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. He responds in verse 20 with an affirmation of his confidence. He says, but as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Firstfruits means that he's the first of many. Just as Jesus was raised from the dead, so all who trust and believe in him and follow after him will be raised as well. That's what it means, that he's the first fruits. And so we're gonna jump down to verse 35 where he's answering a specific question. He says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body will they have when they come? And we can assume that there were people who are actually teaching against the resurrection of our bodies because he responds to that question in verse 36. He says, you fool. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you are not sowing the body that will be but only a seed, perhaps of weed or of another grain. Paul's pulling on a natural example that we can all relate to. You You don't put a tomato seed in the ground and expect a tomato seed to come up out of the ground. You, you expect it to be transformed into a tomato plant and to bear fruit. It's much different than the thing that you placed in the ground. He says, but God gives it a body as he wants and to each of the seeds its own body. Not all flesh is the same flesh. There is one flesh for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. He says there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. He's referring to heavenly bodies are the things that we see in the sky. He says, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is different from that of the earthly ones. There's, there is a splendor of the sun, another of the moon, another of the stars. In fact, one star differs from another in splendor. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. Here are the effects of of the resurrection that Paul points to in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, sown in corruption, raised in incorruption. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. He goes on to say, if there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. How, however, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. What Paul is saying and referring to Adam, he says our great, great, great ancestor Adam passed down to us from generation to generation bodies like these ones. We inherited these bodies from Adam. He says, but the last Adam, which is, he's referring to, to Jesus, he says Jesus becomes the last Adam, and He's going to give us not a body like this one, but but He is a life giving spirit. So what He gives is going to be eternal. That doesn't. That, I'm not trying to give you the impression that our our eternal bodies will have no resemblance to these ones at all, because Jesus and His resurrected body looked like a man, and so we should probably expect the same thing. But what what Paul is saying there is a huge distinction between the body you received from Adam and the body you're going to receive from Jesus. Specifically, he says, those bodies you got from Adam, we sow them in corruption, but they'll be raised in incorruption. We sow them in dishonor, they'll be raised in glory. We sow them in weakness, they will be raised in power. What we sow is a natural body. What we will inherit is a spiritual body. That's fantastic news. Regardless of how good you, or how well you take care of your body, these bodies cannot inherit eternal life. They're not meant to. They are given to corruption. They are, if I can be kind of blunt. They are given to decay. These bodies break down. And we're looking around and most of us in here today are old enough to have experienced the reality that at some point you get to an age where your body's no longer getting better. It's getting worse. And that's a process. You know, for me, um, there was a real defining point when I turned 35 years old. From the time I was in high school until I was 35 years old, I weighed the exact same weight. It didn't matter what I ate. It didn't matter if I, it was glorious. I didn't have to work out. I could could eat all the Little Debbies that I wanted. I could eat all of the pizza that I wanted and I wouldn't gain a pound. I turned 35, I gained 30 pounds in six months. I was getting hot. All the time, I was ear. Ir- I went to the doctor. I'm like, I'm, I think I'm dying. What's going on? And he just smiled and he knew. Look, we all get to this point where our bodies begin to betray us and it doesn't stop. Pastor Greg came into the office the other day. He goes, man, I had to go to the chiropractor this morning. My neck is killing me. I was like, dude, what'd you do? He goes, I looked left. <laughs> yeah, we can't do that anymore, man. <laughs> good news is, the good news is these are not our eternal homes. Jesus is preparing for us a far greater body. A body that is above corruption, that is above disease, that is above pain, that is above death. And he will give us those bodies. Now, all of this, these three considerations The reality, the importance, and the effects of the resurrection are contingent upon the last thing that I want to consider, which is our response to the resurrection. In order for the reality of the resurrection to produce these effects that we're talking about of the resurrection, there is a required response. But before we consider that response, I want to introduce you to some people who have met the resurrected Jesus whose lives have been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, and today they want to publicly declare their faith in Jesus Christ to you. And so for the next few minutes, I'm going to turn it over to Pastor Marty to lead us into these baptisms.
1: That's such a cool transition. I love that. Let me get rid of that. Hey, well, hi. My name is Pastor Marty. As uh, Pastor Fred just told you, I'm here to officiate some baptisms today, which is a super exciting thing. No better day to get baptized than when we celebrate the Lord's resurrection, correct? And so, the Apostle Paul, the same gentleman who wrote uh, the letter to the Corinthian church, also wrote, he wrote much much of the New Testament. One of the letters he wrote was the to the church in Rome, and in Romans chapter six. He actually explained, he talks a lot about the resurrection in relation to the act of baptism. And so as believers in Christ, we have six individuals this morning who have talked to me personally, have made a profession of faith in Christ as their Lord, as their Savior. You'll see their testimony videos here in a couple of minutes. And they are responding to that event, what happened inwardly, their heart being made new, salvation being offered to them, the gift of eternal life they've been granted. They are following that up with believer's baptism because the Apostle Paul says that in baptism we identify with Christ's death, burial, and his resurrection. When I was growing up, a pastor who used to do baptisms, the one who baptized me, he would say this phrase as he would baptize people, he would say, Buried in the likeness of his death, raised in the likeness of his resurrection. And that's exactly what these individuals are doing this morning. So as soon as they get baptized, this is something to celebrate. So we're really excited about this. I'm going to welcome our first person. I'm soaking wet right now, but I'm going to transition us back to continue on our service. If you would pray with me uh, and I'll get the worship team and call Pastor Fred back up. Father God, we thank you so much for this day, Lord. Thank you for new life. God, thank you for salvation in your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the free gift offered to us because of the salvific work of your son, Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago. We celebrate that today. We celebrate these six individuals, the many that were baptized last service as well as last night, Lord, dedicating their lives to you, uh, wanting to serve you and follow you for the rest of their days. Father, we pray that over this entire congregation right now, that if there's anybody here that may not know you as Savior, Father, that you would draw them to yourself for salvation. And Lord, for us that have proclaimed salvation in your son's name, I just pray that you would help us to live out that salvation, Lord. Live out uh, worship to you for the rest of our lives. God, we love you so much. We give the rest of this time to you in Jesus' name. amen. Amen.
0: Amen. Isn't that awesome? So cool to see. Well, this brings us to the last point, the last thing I want us to consider uh, about the resurrection, and that is the response required of the resurrection. I love the way Jesus handles this when he's dealing with Lazarus' sisters. Lazarus, a good friend of Jesus, has passed away. His sisters are mourning. And Jesus says to one of them, he says in John 11, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. But then he asked this all important question. He said, Do you believe this? The most important question that you need to ask yourself about the resurrection today is Do you believe this? Do you believe, as they just testified? that Jesus lived a life that we could not live, that he died a death that we could not bear to die, and that he rose again to give us eternal life. If you believe that, Jesus invites you to come to him through repentance and faith and trusting in him. He invites you to receive his gift of eternal life. He invites you to have your sins washed away. Do you believe this? If you would close your eyes, Just a moment, and just a moment of personal reflection. I want to ask you to consider, have you responded to the gospel message message with belief? If not, do you want to respond to Jesus' invitation today? To believe in him. To receive him into your life. To have your sins forgiven. To receive the gift of eternal life. If you're here today and you're saying, I wanna trust in Jesus, I want him to be my savior. I recognize that I am a sinner, but that he died for my sins and that he rose from the grave to give me eternal life. If you wanna do that today, I'm gonna pray in just a moment and I invite you to pray along with me. But just so I know who's praying with me today, if that's you, you want Jesus to come into your life and be your savior, would you raise your hand nice and high so I can see who I'm praying with here today. Do you want to receive Jesus today? Thank you. Thank you. Any others? Those of you who just raised your hands, you can put your hands down. Would you pray with me in your hearts something like this? Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I've broken your law. I've rebelled against you and I need a savior. But today I turn from my sin and I believe that Jesus, that you came and died for my sins and you rose to give me eternal life. And by believing in you today, I receive you as my savior and I commit myself to following you in this life. I commit myself to learning to live in relationship with you so that I would do the things you want me to do and live the life that you want me to live as I turn from my sinful ways to follow you. Come into my life and come into my heart. Make me a new person as your word says you will. Wash away my sins. And grant me eternal life. Thank you for dying for me. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.